Welcome to this new thinking for a new world podcast of the Talberg Foundation. Is America finished or can the country recover its dynamism? Why has America stopped investing in itself? Why do things from cell phones to highways to schools work so much better in so many countries that used to look up to the United States as their model? Christina Lowe, who is a Hong Kong-based academic, environmentalist and former government official with deep dives to and a deep affection for the United States, explores those questions and others with Alan Stogo. Christine, you have a long history with the United States, as well as the observer's advantage of being able both to watch us up close and understand us from afar, from Hong Kong. Today, America is deeply stressed by the mishandled pandemic, political partisanship, weak leadership, recession, and the deep racial tensions brought again to the surface by the George Floyd murder. Is this the beginning of the end for America as a self-declared torchbearer of freedom and democracy? Well, I hope not. And this may be just a very personal thing. I've always had a very positive view of uh, America. And uh, half my family are American citizens, even though I'm not. Um, I grew up at a time where my father was very pro-American. I remember when I was a very small girl, uh, maybe I was just a few years old, and he made a trip to America. It was his first trip. And when he came back, he told me, he says, he's never seen such a rich country. And that made a very deep impression on me because, of course, at that time in Asia, um, many people were not rich and people were trying to climb out of the problems that they were having. Um, and we saw poverty all around. Um, the other thing, of course, is America seems so well organized and we see on television the American president, always very presidential. We just assume that things work very well in America. America was a very successful country. So, you know, to see in a way that uh, America is going through a very difficult period on many fronts, I think for many of us who have a warm and glowing feeling for America, it's hard to not wish America well. But having now spent some time uh, in America, I do think many of its problems are quite serious and deep, but it is still the most powerful and influential country in the world. It has a very diverse, very talented population. Um, the ingredients are there for America to continue to, to do well. So what went wrong? How did the United States lose its way? Well, I think one of the things on the ground, on a day-to-day -day basis that surprises me is for such a capable country, such a talented country, such a rich country, America has stopped investing in itself. I mean, there's no doubt that America is still extraordinarily rich by any standards. But when we look at the public realm, like, like schools, healthcare, infrastructure, I mean, it's unbelievable for, uh, for me coming from Asia, we take it for granted that the digital infrastructure works very well in Asia. But yet when we go to America, we're surprised that actually these kinds of basic infrastructure actually is kind of behind where we come from. So there's this switch in our mentality where we always assume America was way out in front. But actually, I think what we're really seeing is Asia and perhaps the rest of the world, many places are catching up. 
first of all, this, this gives us a different impression about America. Secondly is, I think America also finds it hard to believe that they're behind. Um, so this tension of, um, uh, in America of its own place and perhaps this sen sensitivity that it is not way out front anymore, perhaps that's affecting how Americans feel about themselves. And I think when you have a country that says uh, America first, it's kind of almost like you're acknowledging that you're behind. Is it a question, as some argue, of everyone else catching up as inevitably and, and positively they should? Or is it a question of the U.S. slowing down, of failing to invest, of failing not just in its infrastructure, but it's in its, in its institutions and its democracy? Why has, in your view, why has the U.S., why is the U.S. slowing down at the pace it seems to be slowing down? I think for a foreigner coming to the U.S., and foreigners coming to the U.S. don't necessarily first see its politics. What we notice are more mundane things. Um, we're shocked, for example, that trains don't work. Uh, we're shocked that the digital infrastructure is not good. These are, as I said, some of the sort of ordinary things. And those are the things where we compare to where we come from. Um, now, of course, for those of us who pay some attention to public policy uh, and to the political realm in America, we see that the division is very, very deep. And in fact, some of the discussion in Asia, looking at America's democracy, we even asked the question, is democracy the be all and the end all? Maybe we don't want an American kind of democracy. Now, of course, it doesn't mean democracy doesn't work. It just means that perhaps the American system or there is something about the American system that isn't working, which results in the division and the polarization and also why are they not investing in the infrastructure? Is it, and it must be, something due to its political priorities? Uh, and then I think as you get deeper into it, uh, you realize that, yes, the politics is, is not spending money on these basic things. And then you look at Asia and other parts of the world where they have less money in a way, they are less rich, but you plow your money back into your own people. This, this is a fundamental point for, I think, Asians in judging America. The implication, I think, is that the American model, broadly defined, is, has either run its course or needs serious reinvigoration, reimagination, change. Do you think there's still a possibility to get it right? Well, there always is, um, and we can't predict the future. We can shape the future. So I think the question for Americans is, what is the future that you wish to shape? Is America capable at this moment to have the kind of discussion that allows them to have meaningful political discussion, which will guide the reforms and transitions that are needed? Because if they can't do it, I'm afraid other parts of the world will will continue to develop, whereas America will not be able to solve its very basic problem, even though some parts of America will, will continue to be very wealthy. I know you're preoccupied with many things, but you do watch the American political discussion. 
Do you see a conversation, a national conversation that has any of the substance, any of the thoughtfulness that you think we ought to have? Um, I'm frustrated by watching American politics as a, a supportive outsider because the moment is so important. The president of America is still the most powerful politician in the world. Uh, and yet, I think today it's like watching a reality show um, where we're not really getting to the topics under discussion. And this is the fault of both parties and with perhaps the candidates themselves. And we're also in a very weird time right now where it's an unusual campaign moment because of COVID-19. So in a way, we're not hearing the kind of discussion one would usually associate with a presidential campaign. And secondly is um, the issues actually are very serious and very big. And I don't even think that it's possible in one electoral cycle to solve those problems. But what I do observe is even if there's going to be a new president, I wonder if it is possible for a new president to actually bring the country together to have these discussions. This is what I worry about for America. Let me segue to race. The U.S. was founded as a white Christian nation facing the Atlantic. Over the course of the last 200 years, we've become a continental country facing both the Atlantic and Pacific, integrated brutally at times. Uh, a lot of migrants from Europe more recently from Asia and Latin America, it's always been bumpy and it's always been nasty, but eventually it gets done. It's still unfinished with Asians and Latins, but it's a process underway. Where we have systematically failed, of course, is to make blacks part of the body politic. Why is it so hard for the United States to overcome its history and get beyond racism with respect particularly to blacks? I think racism is really, really hard to deal with because it goes back so much to skin color. At this moment in time, because we, we don't know the future, we can't always predict the future, but we like to think that there are moments where we can move closer to what we want to achieve. And at this moment in America, because they're talking about they're using the language of white supremacy. I wonder if this narrative actually can help the world because the world is mesmerized by what's happening in America and is responding to it, whether this gives us a moment to think about white supremacy from the perspective of several hundred years of, in a way, the white Christian approach to the world, the idea that that is the civilizing approach for the whole world. Today, we know that's actually not what has happened. And also, can we accept that that's actually not the way forward because the world is diverse. And with countries with different backgrounds, you know, including China and India and elsewhere, coming forward and being able to assert themselves much more because of their growth and development, that this moment actually is reopening the discussion of imperialism, colonialism, 
uh, during that period and how you could say the white Christian dominant narrative became that universal narrative for change. But actually today with other people coming forward, we all have to be thinking much more about each other and how we are different. So it's no longer about everybody falling into the white Christian kind of narrative, but how everyone can look at a much more diverse range of narrative and that we can learn to respect each other's differences. So perhaps a hopeful note is, is this giving us an opportunity that is starting in America? And whilst America itself needs to deal with uh, its so-called original sin uh, of, of racism, uh, particularly with uh, the black community, but whether this also opens up a bigger discussion for America to cope with the non-white, non-Christian world and for other communities in the world to use this opportunity to think about itself and where it wants to go. That seems to be happening in Europe. They're thinking about their history in a more positive tone, aggressively trying to examine their own racism, their own institutions. Do you really see that happening uh, in those parts of the world where the U.S. footprint, the European footprint today is much lighter, much softer? Well, maybe the way I look at it is uh, I can see why in Europe, uh, including in Britain, uh, this is having an impact. Because this is the empire striking back, the reason that these communities uh, have accepted large numbers of immigrants from their former empires is because of colonialism. Um, and people went to the so-called mother country because it was supposed to be better. It offered better education and better opportunities. But after you get there, then the racism, the difficulty and so on have also made an imprint on the immigrants. So I can see why countries with large numbers of immigrants have to deal with this problem much more upfront. Now, for the rest of the world, where you say that perhaps the footprint is lighter, um, well, you know, it's not so much in our face. That's not to say we don't have our own racism. But the issue is we don't have to look at this in terms of the world all doing it in one moment together. But there is, at this moment in time, a, a new flourishing of questioning of the past in a number of major countries. So this is resonating in many places. I wouldn't say perhaps everywhere equally, uh, but it is a start. And in any case, for these countries um, that have a large number of, of immigrants, then they do have to deal with the problem uh, because it's also a foundation that they have to build on for the future. One of the characteristics of the global response to the pandemic has been that it's not been global. We can learn from mistakes, and I think there is a strong case to be made that the response to the pandemic in most places has been mistaken. What are the lessons you'd like to see 
the United States learn, the global structure learn, individual countries learn? Well, the COVID story is, of course, not over. And I expect the story to run until next year. But we are already seeing some elements uh, that are important teaching moments for all of us. I just want to say that, you know, this kind of infectious diseases is very interesting because what contains it at the beginning are, you could say, the most medieval kind of uh, containment. So, for example, once you discover it as an infectious disease, you basically have to contain it. Basically, you have to, in a way, lock up a place and say, don't go anywhere, and we'll try and cure the people who have the disease. But basically, you mustn't leave where you are uh, to infect other people. I know people talk about vaccine and so on, but that's way off. And it is precisely a rather medieval way of dealing with this disease where we have failed because people, number one, didn't take it seriously enough. Um, actually, the Asians on the whole uh, in East Asia moved the fastest. And also, they didn't really ask what is the damage to our economy. Uh, in a way, the East Asian communities were rather successful because they contained it early. So I think that's number one. Number two is then it got to Europe and the Europeans didn't quite, um, didn't quite accept that they were really going to be hit because isn't this a Chinese or an Asian problem? So they then got infected uh, and badly in, in many countries. And then the Americans at that time we're not taking the kind of precautions. So I think you could say that very modern, capable people with high skills in public health kind of missed the boat because they did take it seriously. It was something coming from Asia. So I think this is a, a very deep lesson for the world at this moment in time. And now what we see is the Europeans, in terms of what they got round to doing, their solutions were much closer to what the Asians did. They just did it later. And America is an outlier. So the discussion and the debate in America today still is, do we control, uh, i.e. save lives, or is the economy more important? The Asians did not have that discussion. They just went full steam ahead to contain it. So I think this, this observation of the assumptions of governments, the assumptions of, of a country and the systems. It's very interesting. This is the first really global issue since the late 40s. The first issue that affected literally every country on the planet. Do you think we come out of this more committed to looking for global solutions to global problems or even less committed in practice to global? I don't know that we know the answer to that question yet. The reason is the story is not over. I think from the perspective of Asia and perhaps Europe, the understanding of working together is at a reasonably, I think, positive level. Uh, the outlier, again, is the United States. So I think um, we might have to wait another six months or so to revisit the issue 
and to see how to go forward. What happens when we have a vaccine? Can, is that something that the world can think through how to share? Um, because of course, even when you have a vaccine, you can only make so much available at any one time. So what would be the way to deal with this so the largest number of people around the world can benefit from it? Is it to share the technology? You might have one country or one company being the first and the most successful one, but how do you share it with uh, as widely as possible? So again, I think there are these interesting challenges that are coming. And leaders and corporate leaders as well, you know, national and corporate leaders can see this. Uh, I'd like to think that there are people who are thinking about how to, um, how to be more selfless if we did have a vaccine soon. I'd like to think that that is on the agenda and that will still have to come. Now, one of the inconvenience that we have right now is the conflict between US and China, the two of them, so to speak how that is not going to spill over and spoil it for everybody else. You can't stop there. You have, to, you have to push that button further. Clearly, that tension between China and the United States, the legacy power, the rising power, however you want to frame it, is defining geopolitics today and in the murky future. I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. And it's, a, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing from, uh, we can try to explain the issue. I mean, from China's point of view, they feel that America wants to slow them down. It's kind of burst forth in a rather mean-spirited way. You know, again, we can't tell what the future is. What is it that will bring them together to at least have some kind of a working equilibrium? But let us not forget, it wasn't that long ago that the Obama administration was able to identify a number of important issues, despite a lot of disagreement, whether two countries can work together. Climate change was one of them. Iran was another one. So um, is it possible within disagreement to still find areas where they could cooperate? Now, that must be something possible for the future. Do you think we need a new framework for the two to work successfully together, given the nature of the 21st century challenges? Or can they reinvigorate the existing framework that came out of World War II? Um, I think the existing framework, I don't, I don't know how wide that is uh, in the context of our discussion, but probably a framework has to be created and negotiated. Right now, they aren't even doing that. Um, not very long ago, um, the Asians in ASEAN very much made the point to both US and China that in Asia, they don't want to be asked to take sides. And I wonder whether um, the Asians as a bloc could actually stimulate the two to have that discussion, uh, in some ways, what role they can play together for US and China to come to a next stage where they can start to look at an adapted framework. You know, let, let's not say a completely different framework, but an adapted framework where they start narrowing their differences. 
Final question. When it comes to issues around human rights, the United States historically played a role globally. Frankly, it was somewhat different than what it played domestically, but played a role globally where many saw the Americans as the North Star for human rights and moral values. If we disappear from that role, what will be the consequences? Uh, actually, I look at this differently. Um, I mean, one of the concerns is if America no longer really wants to play that role. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is um, America will only play that role because it wants to promote regime change in other countries. So it's using human rights as a sword to achieve political purposes in other countries. And that's why I think you're getting feedback from other parts of the world that they look at America and just say, well, you know, this is huge double standards. So it's not going to be as effective as possibly some other times in the past. Take that a half step forward. Given that, where do we get global values? Where do we get standards? Who are the advocates? Is it civil society? Has it passed from the states to people? Is that the future? Who's going to raise that flag, raise that banner, be the conscience, which the U.S. pretended to be at times in the past, and maybe wasn't? I, I, I grant the point. I used to, um, if I can put it this way, I used to drink the human, white, human rights narrative. You could say drink the Kool-Aid, right? And bought into that narrative. I no longer do 100%. The reason is rights are very important. And I think in America, in a way, the attractive side is, you know, individual rights has maximum space. And in Asia, the talk has been more about, and what about the responsibilities? Now, in the past, when I was younger, I used to think, well, that's just an excuse of not wanting to give us the freedom. So you want to focus on responsibilities. But actually, I think there is something about balancing rights and responsibilities. So this conversation, again, um, is it possible to revive the conversation from the time of the UN human rights meeting in Vienna, which I actually went to. And at that time, I was deep into the Kool-Aid. But over the years, I begin to think that actually we do want to talk about responsibilities and rights together. And you could say that at the time, those countries that argues against rights and wanted to put more responsibilities on uh, uh, more emphasis on responsibilities, that perhaps they were not being genuine. But I've come to think that actually, maybe the people rather than just leave it with the government should also talk about responsibilities. Uh, we haven't had that discussion now in the world for a very long time. And that is a discussion that we need to have uh, both in the world and within the world of Telberg. Thank you, Christine, very much. This has been absolutely wonderful, and I look forward to our next discussion. Thank you. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Thinking for a New World podcast. We welcome your comments, and please subscribe to other episodes in the podcast app of your choice. 
This podcast was made possible with the generous support of the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.